Have you ever played the lottery? It was always a rite of passage for us. Like, when you turned 18, you bought a lottery ticket. Loser! It's 16 over here. Ah. It's like a big deal. Like, that was one of the few things you can do at 18. You can buy a lottery ticket, you can buy cigarettes, and you can rent a U-Haul. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> See here, at 16, you could buy a lottery ticket, and at one point you could buy cigarettes, and then they upped it to 18. Yeah. 17, you le- oh, and you can learn to ride a moped as well, which I didn't do, because I was like, no, I'm going to save up and buy a car when I'm 17 instead. Yeah. 17, you learn to drive, and then 18, you get pissed. I mean, at least I could already drive by 16. Yeah. So that's something, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, I did when I, for my 18th birthday, well, and actually for, I drove a couple of different friends to the gas station to buy lottery tickets on their 18th birthdays. And then I I bought, because I was the only one with the car. (laughs) Um, And then I bought, yeah, I think I bought a Powerball ticket on my 18th birthday. It was really funny. I'm like the Saturday after my 16th. I went and bought a ticket, so the woman who owned the village shop, she writes Snooty Cower, nobody liked her. Um, I grew up with her son, like, I had known her all my life because I went to school with her son, and she's like, are you really 16? I was like, yeah. She's like, really? I was like, well, is your son 16? And I'm like, I'm there, I've got my passport as well, so like, she can see... I'm 16. I was like, I was, I was like, I was at school with your son for 11 years. Yeah, it's like you know and like, me. <laughs> and she was really assy about it, and I was like, hm, fine. I didn't uh, win. No, I didn't win either. That's why we're still here. <laughs> That's why we're poor. But yeah, so for most of us, the lottery is just a pipe dream. It's that small chance that you'll get super lucky and strike it super rich. But for Jerry and Marge Selby, the lottery wasn't just a dream, it was a career. Jerry and Marge won millions of dollars in the lottery, all thanks to math, which I know in this episode we're going to have some issues because I've written it math and I know it's maths, plural. Oh, hell yeah. So uh, that will be switching back and forth. You're, you've been warned. <laughs> yeah, because really it's maths. It's math. But yeah, so welcome to Square Mile of Murder. If you couldn't already tell, that's what you were listening to by the fucking nonsense that we've been spouting already. I mean, it is, it is our speciality. Yeah. Uh, and today we are going to tell you the amazing story of Jerry and Marge Selby, the lottery hackers. Uh, and just a little like whoopsies here. Turns out there's not really so much like a crime in this story, which I forgot. And then I got most of the way through writing it and was like, oh shit, nobody gets arrested or anything. But it's a great story and there is an investigation, so. Yeah, it's it's kind of like one of those things that feels like it should be illegal. Yes. You are gaming the lottery, but it's not illegal. Exactly. Which, like, I think is a, is a sort of, like, yeah, it's like a spiritual crime or, like, like a crime in spirit. 
ethics morality <laughs> morality i wouldn't know anything about that uh so yeah you known homosexual you i know exactly immigrant immigrant what else are you <laughs> short freckle-faced yeah i don't think that counts on. as on the morality scale i don't know you ask some people and they don't like it <laughs> anyway yeah so much of our uh, info today comes from the fantastic article Jerry and Marge Go Large by Jason Fagoni for Highline at the Huffington Post, which came out in 2018. And if you have like, I don't know, 45 minutes, you should really go read this article because it's it's really great. And there's also great pictures to go along with the story. So highly recommend. So let's do it. Jerry Selby used to work for Kellogg's Cereal designing boxes that helped increase the shelf life of said cereal. And if you've ever purchased a box of cereal with like a foil liner bag on the inside, you've seen Jerry's handiwork. Which, I have not because we don't have them here. I, like, all plastic bags. Well, that's the thing. I think they're all plastic now. But I think when I was a kid, they some of them were probably foil. Actually, I know right. some of them So were. foil lined is that... Oh. I was going to say that, like, what Pop-Tarts come in, and then I remembered you don't like Pop-Tarts because you're a psychopath. But I think it is, yeah, it's like a foil bag kind of thing, right? Mm. Yeah, like that. Um, mm. Yeah. No so. comeback on the psychopath thing. I agree to disagree. <laughs> About Pop-Tarts and psychopathy. <laughs> Pop-Tarts are delicious. They're so sweet. And I hate yeah, you them. You can't eat them every day. I can't well, eat you them. You can eat them every day for four days. Because at you all. Get four packs in a box and then not eat them for six months while your teeth recover. But it shouldn't stay good for six months. Like, that's concerning to me. <laughs> no, I mean, you can eat like you can eat like four. Oh. Like, there's, there's four packs of two. Yeah. So you could eat them every day for four days, but then you've got to not eat them for like. Six months or something because your teeth need to recover. And I then thought, you can buy another box of eight. I thought you meant like you kept one of the bags and it just stayed good for six months and then you could eat it again. Which like it probably In my would. house they don't last six days. Well. And I mean the Gremlin likes them. I do not. I think I was a toaster strudel fan as a kid though. See, we don't have that here, so we, I've never experienced it. I don't think they even have them still in America, but they were better. They were flaky, they were pastry, they had a little icing bag that you could do yourself. It was really good. So flaky pastry that you put in a toaster. Mm-hmm. That's a toaster fire waiting to happen. I mean, yes, but it's America. That's our oh, God-given right. you can just sue right. someone for it. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. Just sue Pillsbury. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, here we go. Um, yeah, so Jerry's working away in the Kellogg's factory, but he found his job kind of boring, uh, as you do, because his job included like drying and weighing cereal and like wow. testing the moisture content and stuff like that. So I don't blame him. Um, but so he would solve puzzles at work to keep his mind occupied. And he even worked out the competing uh, General Mills production schedule based on the numbers printed on the bottom of their boxes. But 
that kind of corporate espionage and puzzle solving wasn't really needed in the cereal industry, uh, unfortunately for him. That's a shame. I thought the cereal industry would be more cutthroat than that. I know, right? Like, you really think it would be. Like, competing for America's breakfasts. Coming well, when soon. you put it like that. Coming soon to a theater near you. I'd watch that. I wouldn't. No, I would. I'm that person. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but yeah, but Jerry didn't really mind. He just liked the puzzles. Jerry had married his high school sweetheart, Marjorie, who went by Marge, and he worked a variety of factory and corporate jobs as their family grew. Jerry and Marge had six kids. No. <laughs> Over a decade. But a big family didn't slow down Jerry's need for knowledge. While working and raising kids, Jerry went to night school at Kellogg Community College, which is known around the town as Cornflake U. I love that. <laughs> what town are they in? Uh, I think they're in Battle Creek, Michigan. So he went to Cornflake University, uh, where he earned an associate's degree from Kellogg's and went to get on to get a bachelor's in mathematics and business and an MBA from Western Michigan University. He also started a master's in maths, but didn't get to finish due to family responsibilities. And Jerry threw himself fully into anything he became interested in. He had fascinations with all sorts of things, including mushrooms. Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't love mushrooms? Yeah, I don't. I, I love them, and apparently it stems from Stem, as in a mushroom huh. stem. Oh, apparently it stems from when I was a kid, like one or two years old. Um, my when my parents took me shopping, like went shopping on a weekend for groceries, they would put me in the trolley and they'd get like a bag of mushrooms, like the loose mushrooms, and then they'd just give me a couple to keep <laughs> me quiet <laughs> because it was loose vegetables that they could just be like, right, okay, eat that, keep you quiet. It's mostly water, so, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that's where it stems from, because they just ate loads of mushrooms when I was a kid. Like me, Jerry loved mushrooms. Uh, he was also fascinated by fossils, rare coins, and even string theory. It's a very eclectic mix. Yeah, yeah. Coins are actually quite interesting. They are. So, I didn't put this in there, but there's a great uh, bit in this article where, apparently... Jerry's concept for rare coins was to buy rolls of coins at cost from the bank, and then he and his son would open them all up and go through each coin in hopes that somebody had accidentally rolled up a valuable coin. Mm. And they actually found a bunch and made a bunch of money doing that. <laughs> That's so cool. I I've never thought of just going to the bank and getting bags of, of change to see if there's any valuable coins. Yeah. That's really clever. Yeah. Uh, so, with all that in mind, it was no surprise that at the age of 64, Jerry found a new interest. And that was the lottery. And he devoted himself 100% to his new hobby. But let's go back a bit. In 1984, Jerry decided he didn't want to work for, it, for other people anymore. Instead, wanting to run his own business, he settled on buying a convenience store. In true Jerry form, he didn't take this endeavour lightly. 
He did his research and analysed data from 32 different stores up for sale in Michigan. He looked at sales histories, town demographics, even the traffic patterns at their locations. After all his number crunching, he settled on a store in Everett, Michigan, about 120 miles north of the Selby's current home. In Everett, Jerry bought the simply named Corner Store, and the family moved into a house about a mile away on the edge of the Muscogon River. Um, yeah, I just love that it's called The Corner Store. <laughs> Does what it says on the tin. Exactly. Uh, so the store was quickly a hit with town locals, and they all grew to love Jerry and Marge. Uh, and you best believe that Marge was involved with the store. She did all the books, stocked the shelves, and purchased items like candy or other like impulse buy stuffs. Stuffs? Mm. Stuff. Proper mom, mom and pop. Yeah, literally. Um, however, she left the quote-unquote vice items like cigarettes and alcohol to Jerry. And just like everything else, Jerry found ways to crack the puzzle of buying and selling these items. He actually found a way to undercut cigarette wholesalers to get a better profit. And Everett was home to two automotive plants with plenty of workers just off the night shift coming into the corner store. So one day Jerry realized that he could set his beer cooler to defrost in the evening and by morning the beers in the case would have a layer of frost that made them that much more appealing to these factory workers coming off long night shifts. That is really clever. It's so smart. Uh, you never think of that, do you? No, but like if I saw a at 6am and I've been working all night a beer covered in a layer of frost like yeah i i'd take i'd take him up on that yeah um yeah and and people insisted that the corner store had the coldest beer in town <laughs> um and since he was in charge of the vices jerry decided to install a lottery machine in the store and just like that all their regular customers loved playing the lottery now if you don't know and we didn't really. The lottery has a long, long history. The first lotteries were recorded between 205 and 187 BC in China, which is like a long time long ago. Long ass time ago. The first known European lottery was held during the Roman Empire, and it was augured. Augured. It was organized by Roman Empire Augustus and was used to carry out repairs in the city of Rome. Uh, similarly, American lotteries have been around since the colonial era. They were used as a way to fund roads, schools, churches and even armies. And that's still how the lottery works in America today. Um, players buy a ticket hoping to get rich quick even though they know it's a really super long shot. And the lottery organiser takes the money they paid for the tickets and puts it towards something for the public good. Lottery games are very popular. Psychological re research has tried to figure out why it usually lands on a list of negative reasons why people play. Desperation, gambling addiction, misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge about the probability. So patronising. It really is. It's like, okay, but... Like, everyone knows you're probably not going to win. Yeah. 
it's just that tiny little bit of might. Yeah, exactly. You know. But it is undeniable that playing the lottery provides a surge of hope, as we just said, and that probably has to do has a lot to do with why people play. Yeah. Um also in the UK, most lotteries are registered charities. So like the national lottery, the big lottery on a uh Saturday a Wednesday and a Saturday is a registered charity and that funds a lot of charities throughout the country. Like my old job was funded by, not by the National Lottery, but by another, not by the National Lottery as in the charity, the National Lottery, but by another big national lottery. Lottery, game or whatever. Organization, yeah. like, uh, the postcode lottery that yeah. actually paid for my old, or part funded my old job Yeah, in a charity in Glasgow. Um, So that's really... Like we were talking about this before we started recording, that's really interesting that so many of them are registered charities and they have charities that, like, charities just apply for different funding. They'll be funding for, like, obviously there's different stipulations and stuff, but yeah, yeah there's so many millions goes from, like, post uh, People's Postcode Lottery and the National Lottery into charities. It's yeah incredible. Um, a lot of charities now have their own. Yeah. little lotteries so you won't win like millions but the prize might be a thousand pounds yeah yeah for, um, for a pound okay even if you don't win you've given a pound to charity well exactly and like yeah it's kind of an interesting way to do it whereas like in the states it's it's like it's run through governments basically to then you know, they fund education or, you know, it goes to the school dr- district or it goes to fix all the potholes in Oklahoma or something. Whereas here yeah. in the UK, it's it's more charity-based instead of, like, public works-based, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Now, in America, the lottery has been derided for years as a, quote, tax on the poor because substantially more poor people play the lottery than rich people do which like psychologically kind of makes sense like if you're oh, yeah. financially stable you're not looking for the you know one big shot that'll you know mm. lift you out of poverty or something when i was at university so like 18 19 it was always a joke it was like we're all too it's like no we're too broke to go out we're too broke to do this we'll this is when the lottery was still a pound. Yeah. We'll always find that pound down the back of the yeah. the sofa, under the bed, in, you know, the bottom of your handbag. You will find that to play the lottery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's like a long history of this sort of perception, uh, including going all the way back to 1762 in Pennsylvania. So that's pre-independence in America, like pre-declaring of independence by like wow. 14 years so this is a, we're, we're going back into the history of the country here um yeah so pennsylvania lawmakers decided that anyone running these quote mischievous and unlawful games would be fined for quote causing the ruin and impoverishment of many poor families <laughs> so they weren't fans um but lotteries kept going in other places and despite other scandals until the late 1800s when a group of criminals in Louisiana gained control of the state lottery by bribing elected officials. 
So <laughs> that didn't go over that's, very well. That's not good. No. Um, after that incident, many states banned lotteries altogether. But people still played underground and illegally, which, of course, meant that all that money that people were playing no longer went to public funds. They just went to, you know, your bookie, which is mm -hmm. kind of not great. So, yeah, in 1964, New Hampshire started the first government sponsored lottery after 70 years of bans. And today, 44 states and Washington, D.C., the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico all run their own lotteries. And many also join forces for multi-state games like the Mega Millions and the Powerball. Uh, the lottery industry brings in $80 billion per year, with uh, $50 plus billion of that going to paying out prizes, and $22 billion going to public programs like education, land conservation, veteran support, pensions, and senior assistance. Unfortunately, though, this makes it way easier for states to raise money through lotteries than through things like corporate taxes. So technically, this still places the burden on poorer individual citizens to, you know, maintain infrastructure and that sort of thing instead of putting the burden on super-rich corporations. I had never thought of that angle before. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the points that, like, was quite striking in that that um, Highline article for HuffPost, because, like, I've heard of that before. Like, I know that most corporations aren't taxed heavily in the United States, but it never really occurred to me, like, what's making that up along the way. Yeah. And like, this is a very striking example of like $22 billion a year. Yeah. Is, is from that when like literally that could come just from Amazon or just from general electric or just, you know, like, yeah. Which, and have you seen the state of your country's infrastructure? Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> Have we ever met a train that we didn't destroy? No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's like a little short history of the American lottery. Uh, but Jerry and Marge weren't really thinking about that history. They just knew that this lottery machine that they put in their store provided a big boost in their business. They got to a point where they were selling $300,000 in lottery tickets per year. and the store took home about $20,000 of that in profit. That's not bad. It's not really. bad for, you know, putting a little kiosk in your store, basically. Yeah. Um, and eventually the lottery side of the business became so successful that it paid to put their six kids through school. Wow. Yeah. Now you might think that this couple who is so good at selling beer and cigs and lotto tickets they must be living life high on the hog and enjoying these vices themselves but you'd be very wrong you see the selbys didn't drink except jerry would have one beer every christmas god bless him uh they didn't smoke and they certainly didn't play the lottery because for marge the risk was just too great now jerry 
thought of the lottery as an interesting puzzle to solve, and he had bought a few tickets here and there, but he knew that the odds weren't in his favor. So he kind of left it. Uh, And for 15 years, they opened the store every day at 7 a.m. and closed at midnight. They even opened on Christmas morning because the only other grocery store in town was closed that day. But after 15 years, Jerry and Marge decided it was time to retire. And in 2000, they sold the shop. But Jerry often stopped into the old store to see how the new owners were getting along. And it was on one of those drop-ins that Jerry noticed a brochure for a new lottery game called Windfall. It was 2003 and Jerry was enjoying his retirement, spending time drinking coffee in the local diner, watching science shows on TV. Sounds like so much fun. Yeah, right? <laughs> like coffee and documentaries, what, what more? more do you want? Yeah. But that big brain of his was always looking for a new puzzle to solve. And this new lottery game was just the ticket, so to speak. Yeah. There's a lot of that in here, I realized, as I was writing. It's like, it's going to get... You do bring the puns. It's going to get punny. Yeah. Now, Taylor has written in the script that we're not mathematicians. She can speak for herself. I am actually really good at maths. Oh, well, then you should be explaining all this stuff that's coming up, because I'm shit at math, so... (laughs) I've never figured out how to win the lottery, but, you know. So Taylor ain't no mathematician. That's for damn sure. But we're going to do our best to describe how this windfall lottery game worked. A ticket cost $1, and you pick six numbers from 1 through to 49. And then the Michigan lottery drew six numbers. If all six numbers matched, you won the jackpot, which was guaranteed to be at least $2 million. But it was often higher. If you matched five, four, three, or two numbers, you won smaller amounts. Fairly standard. Yeah for big lottery games like that. Yeah. But this is where it gets interesting. Windfall had a unique feature called a roll-down. If nobody won the jackpot for a while and the pot got, got above $5 million, the jackpot was then rolled down. This meant that during the next drawing, as nobody had matched the six numbers, that cash was awarded to the people who had fewer matching numbers. Kind of like trickle-down economics... But it actually worked. But um, so that's that. That's interesting because here it's just rolled over every week. Yeah, like so you do get your smaller amounts. Like if you match five, four, or three numbers, mm-hmm. you get smaller amounts. But it never like trickles down like that. Yeah. So most games are they like they accumulate, whereas this mm-hmm. one is like okay, well, if it gets to a certain point, then we redistribute, which is really weird and interesting. Yeah. Uh, so these roll downs happened around every six weeks, and they were actually a big event. The Michigan Lottery would advertise them before they happened in hopes of getting more people to play. And that actually worked. Sales were always higher during roll down weeks. Uh, it's and all- same here for right. like a, if the jackpot rolls over. Yeah. They always really go big on the advertising for it. Yeah. Which makes sense. And that's the only time I. Generally, if it gets like rolled over to a massive amount on the national, yeah. sometimes I might buy a ticket. Yeah, because it works. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> the marketing works. <laughs> they're they're good at what they're what they're selling here. Mm. Um, yeah. So all this information was in the brochure that Jerry picked up. 
as were the odds of the various uh, matching numbers. So there was a 1 in 54 chance of matching three numbers, which would net you $5. There was a 1 in 1,500 chance of matching four numbers, which would get you $100. So, you know, you pay... You pay $1 for your ticket and you either, you could get five, one in 54 times you could get five bucks back. So uh, pretty standard lottery odds. Yeah. Um, However, Jerry, with math always on the mind, stood there and did some mental calculations. He realized that if he waited to play during a roll down week, he actually stood to win more than he lost. So during those weeks, three number matches would get you $50 instead of five, and matching four numbers would win you $1,000 instead of 100 But... And not bad odds. No, right? Like, that's... We're, we're getting better here. Yeah. Well, no, they are bad odds, but, you know, it sweetens it a bit. Yes. So the important thing about this is it only worked if nobody picked six correct numbers and won the the six number jackpot but like what are the odds of that really really low so Mm. jerry realized that statistically speaking his one dollar lottery ticket was worth more than one dollar on roll down weeks this guy's so smart i'm so jealous of him (laughs) (laughs) so he knew he had something here but he didn't want to tell Marge just yet. He had to prove his hypothesis first. And also, he assumed it couldn't have been that easy. Like, how could lottery employees and players alike have missed this major loophole? So to test things out, he did a dry run with pencil and paper. He picked numbers during a roll-down week without buying a ticket, and his fictional picks made money. So he decided to take his theory out into the world, for the next windfall roll down, Jerry drove 50 miles out of town to a convenience store where he bought $2,200 worth of tickets. <laughs> what the actual fuck? I know. That is, oh my, they must have had plenty of money left over from selling the business. I think so. Otherwise, his wife would have been, Madge would have been so mad, like, there's I know. two... Two and a quarter grand missing from the account. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that there's, you know, a few bucks worth of petrol on top of that as well. Well, yeah, driving 50 miles to the outdoor, uh, out of the way convenience store. I just like, I just love, it's like, well, he tested his theory with a pencil of paper and he was like, yeah, this works. Let me just throw two grand at it. I mean, okay, I know, go big or go home, but start with like 50 bucks. Not Jerry. The drawing happened, and he went through all his tickets (laughs) and found all of the number matches that he had. His winnings came to $2,150, which is just $50 less than he'd spent. So he made a loss this first time, but it actually didn't deter him. He realized that to increase his odds of profit, he needed to buy more tickets. (laughs) So next time, he bought 3,400 tickets and won $6,300. 
And then the next time after that, he spent $8,000 and won $15,700. So, his system was working. Somehow. <laughs> and it was time to tell Marge. Marge was always a practical one, and she didn't like standing still. You might find her chopping up a tree that had fallen down in the yard, or repainting their barn. She liked having something to do, and she didn't like risk and uncertainty. Fair enough. Yeah. Sounds like a good... Like, a good headspace to be in. Yeah. So when Jerry was getting ready to tell Marge about the lottery, he was nervous. He told her he'd been playing the lottery, but not to worry, because he knew how to beat it. He told her he'd already won five figures. Marge didn't respond at first, but within a couple of minutes, she was on board. She knew Jerry was always solving puzzles, and she knew that if he said he'd solved this one, she could only believe him. Besides, it's hard to argue with $15,000, isn't it? I'd say. Yeah. And like we said before, Jerry and Marge never did anything half-assed. The lottery was no exception. They began playing it like it was a full-time job. They would go to convenience stores around town and print lo- print tickets all day long. Literally, all day. Lottery machines could only print 10 slips of paper at a time, with 10 lines of numbers on each slip. So you could only get 10 entries per slip, and 100 entries at a time. But Jerry and Marge weren't playing such small potatoes. Oh no. They were betting amounts like $100,000 on windfall. So they had to stand at the machines for hours, waiting while the machines spit out 10,000 tickets a time. That's crazy. I just... Are are the machines, like, self-serve? No. But we'll get to that. (laughs) Since they knew all the local store owners, nobody gave them a hard time. And local residents didn't really ask any questions. Which, like, I would ask questions. Yeah. But maybe that's just me. They would group their tickets in piles worth $5,000, tie them up with rubber bands, and then sort through them one by one after the drawing. Oh no. Mm-hmm. They sat in front of the TV, counting through tens or hundreds of thousands of tickets, and sorted them into piles based on how many numbers matched. And then they counted them again, just to double check. They got so good that they could pick up a ticket and give it a quick glance and then put it right where it needed to go. When their daughter Dawn tried to help one time, they outpaced her by 10 tickets to one. Yeah. To them, it was a game and they were having fun. Wow. I just kept like, ah, ah, ah. I I would not have the patience. I know. Like, I don't even check. If I play the lottery, I don't even check my ticket. I just go to the the kiosk at the the local shop and i'm like can you check my ticket because i'm so lazy i can't even be bothered to google (laughs) what the drawing was yeah you're not sitting in front of the tv for days counting tickets. yeah (laughs) yeah well but their uh their strategy paid off and they started raking in wins and pretty soon jerry realized that he should share the wealth he set up a company called GS Investment Strategies, LLC, which apparently was so boringly named on purpose. 
so as not to <laughs> draw suspicion. Um, yeah. You mean it wasn't like Jerry and Marge's big lottery yeah. game of chance? Yeah, exactly. Get rich quick with Jerry and Marge. <laughs> um, so uh, he sold shares of the company to family and friends. And shareholders would then chip in for the big buy-ins and split the winnings on the other side. Uh, the first time Jerry and Marge bet as a group, it was just them and their kids. Uh, the family together bet $18,000 and lost almost all of it because of that one pesky loophole in the loophole. Someone else matched six numbers and won the jackpot that time. No. Yeah. But like, God bless them. That didn't stop them. The kids were like, okay, dad, let's go again. <laughs> uh, so within two more tries, they had made all their money back and then some. And pretty soon, GS Investment Strategies had 25 members, including Jerry's accountant, a state trooper, a bank vice president, a parole officer, and three lawyers. This is... Obviously, it's on a much bigger scale, but this is just like a syndicate, really, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, like a bunch of colleagues who are like, okay, let's do the lottery every week. Exactly. Well, and like, um, I know in America, it's very common, especially if you win the lottery, even if you don't buy a ticket as a company, they suggest that you claim any big lottery winnings as a corporation because you can keep your identity secret that way mm. um so you ha go have someone collect the winnings on behalf of the corporation and uh that's my plan if i ever win the lottery i'm incorporating <laughs> um so like yeah i think it happens a lot on different scales in different ways yeah so this is working out pretty well the 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 betting group was was winning. The first play uh, of everyone together got them forty thousand dollars in profit. Next up was eighty thousand dollars, and then one hundred and sixty thousand uh, dollars. Marge nice. saved all of the money that she won, her share of it, in a bank in a savings account. Jerry bought himself a new truck and a camping trailer. Uh, and he also started buying coins from the U.S. Mint in hopes of protecting against inflation, which is like the most grandpa thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I love it. Um, and pretty soon he'd filled five safety deposit boxes with silver and gold coins. So they were doing pretty well. Uh, but then chance dealt them a bad hand. The Michigan lottery shut down the windfall game. <gasps> yeah. Now, lottery officials claimed they were ending the game due to low ticket sales, which offended Jerry and Marge. Thank you very much. I mean, I think they probably were like holding it up as much. They're like <laughs> propping the whole lottery industry up in Michigan. Probably, honestly. Um, so the two of them were crushed because for them it wasn't just about losing the income, but it was more that they'd lost their hobby and the way that they filled their time. But their luck soon changed. Uh, Jerry got an email from a GS Group member who noticed a similar windfall game in Massachusetts. 
Uh, this one was called Cash Windfall and was slightly different. The tickets cost $2 instead of $1. Uh, numbers were between 1 and, six, uh, 1 and 46, not 49. And the jackpot rolled down when it hit 2 million instead of 5 million. Jerry did a little math because that's what he's good at. He's good at the maths. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty soon he realised his system still worked. But there was another problem. Lottery tickets have to be purchased in person. And he was in Michigan, which is 700 miles away. Yeah. He also didn't know any store owners in Massachusetts who, who would let him sit at a machine all day printing tickets. But he'd gotten the chance to keep his hobby. How could he resist? He asked the group member if he knew any store owners in Massachusetts. And wouldn't you know, he did. Uh, Paul Maddis, the owner of Billy's Beverages in Sunderland. So I used to live in Sunderland <laughs> in Tyne and Weir. Not Massachusetts, no. but you know, big up Sunderland. Which is around uh, 50 miles from the western Massachusetts border. So Jerry saddled up in his truck because he didn't like flying. And in August 2005, began driving to Massachusetts. Which was a 12-hour trip. Yeah. Was he going on his own? Yeah, he went on his own the first time. Oh, man, I would not do that. No. I know. not Like, I've done that drive in the other direction, and it's a long day. Um, also, so I didn't realize this, I guess, the first time I read the story, but this all takes place, like, right around where I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, that's cool yeah because like <laughs> Sunderland and uh, they end up in like Deerfield that was like I don't know 10 miles north of the town that I lived in when I was a kid <laughs> it's like where you'd go to get the really good ice cream or like the mall <laughs> was near there kind of thing so uh, uh, re reading this now as an adult it's like oh shit <laughs> I know exactly where this is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a little, little fun thing for me. Um, so he arrived in Sunderland and Jerry met up with uh, Paul Martis and offered him a deal. If Martis let him sit there and print tickets all day when the lottery rolled down, he'd give Martis a stake in his betting company. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, to start, he'd be wanting to buy... About $100,000 worth of tickets. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Martis agreed. And uh, Jerry returned a few weeks later with March. Uh, they knew they needed to find another ticket machine so they could split the printing duties. So they went looking, and they found one at, appropriately enough, Jerry's Place, which was a diner in South Deerfield, Massachusetts, which is just near Sunderland. And uh, the owner of Jerry's Place was also happy to accept the same kind of deal that they had offered to Martis. So soon, Jerry and Marge were back in business. They would drive down a week before the rolldown, stay at the Red Roof Inn in South Deerfield, and go to work every morning at 5.30 a.m. and keep going until 6 p.m. <laughs> I just insane. can't imagine. Um, Jerry would go to Jerry's place and Marge would go to Billy's beverages. They still bundled their tickets in stacks of $5,000 and they tossed those stacks into duffel bags. 
Um, after the drawing, they check the tickets in their Red Roof Inn room, piling them everywhere. And they only left the room to get lunch. Now, for an example of how long this took, uh, counting $70,000 worth of tickets took 10 days working 10 hours per day. Wow. Uh, in a fucking Red Roof Inn. Like, I cannot imagine. Uh, so once they were done counting, they would claim their winning tickets and drive back to Michigan. And through all of this, they kept all of their losing tickets in plastic tubs and stored them out in the barn just in case the IRS ever wanted to see a paper trail. That is like the best way to get back at the Inland Revenue. Yeah. It's just like... HMRC as it is here. Be like, yep, come at me. Here's my like millions and millions of pounds worth of losing, losing lottery, lottery tickets. tickets. Literally. One of you has to go through it. Yeah. Oh, that'd be like so amazing there's, to just punish them like that. There's a line in the article and it was like, they kept them in plastic tubs to keep the raccoons out and they filled their barn. I just can't fucking imagine like... Uh, a poor IRS agent sent out to audit the Selby's, <laughs> you know, pawing through raccoon shit covered plastic tubs of losing lottery tickets. <laughs> Their first play in Massachusetts cost them 120000 for 60,000 tickets and they won $178,000, netting them a $58,000 profit. Next time, they bought 312,000 tickets, and they even got up to 360,000 tickets in total uh, for a grand total cost of $720,000. Yeah. They were betting way, way more than they ever had in Michigan, but their gambit kept paying off, and pretty soon they were bringing in profits above $200,000 each time. By 2009, while the US economy was busy imploding and triggering the global, global demise of everything, yep. Jerry and Marge were still making money. They had grossed over $20 million in winnings, which boiled down to a profit of $5 million after taxes and expenses. But they didn't let it go to their heads. They kept up their comfortable lifestyle, stayed in their house, and didn't change much of anything. The people in their betting group were able to pay off debts, send kids through college, renovate their houses. Paul Mattis, the owner of Billy's Beverages, used his winnings to file for divorce, <laughs> reassess his life, fall in love again, and become a stepdad to three kids. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I just love that. Because, like, you start you start at the, the, the top of that list, and you're like, he used his money to get a divorce. And you're like, oh... But then it's like, and then he made better choices, and then he met someone new, and now he has kids. And it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and technically, they were only breaking two rules. One, customers weren't allowed to operate ticket machines themselves. They got around this by having Maddus and the owner of Jerry's Place hire them, in inverted commas, to run the machines. And two... Lottery machines weren't allowed to be operated outside of star hours. 
Jerry and Marge sat it before the stores opened. But Jerry figured that one wasn't such a big deal. Plus, the Massachusetts State Lottery knew what they were doing and didn't seem to mind. The lottery would check in on them. At one point, an official observed Jerry and Marge at work and reported back, I spent some time observing the wagering routine. Everything is very organised and runs smoothly. One reply to that email said, how do I become a member of their club when I retire? Yeah. Which, like... And that's the thing, it sounds like it's illegal. It sounds like... Yeah. You shouldn't be allowed to do it, but you're not actually breaking any rules. You're just buying a shit ton of lottery tickets. That's the thing. Like, it's not... And and that's the thing. It's not illegal. Like, if they were going in and, like, having a computer hooked up to the lottery machine and pick their numbers or something like that, that's illegal. But all they're doing is putting in the fucking grunt work of buying hundreds of thousands of tickets, which is not illegal, maybe insane, but... Serving him well. Yeah, I'd say. Um, and unbeknownst to Jerry and Marge, there were actually other large betting groups playing the same cash windfall game. This included a group of students from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is appropriate considering. <laughs> Didn't, was it when your parents worked there? My dad parents? was a professor at MIT. Um he basically started their uh like real estate investment program. Um did he have any involvement? He didn't. This was after his time, unfortunately. <laughs> but boy, I bet you he would have jumped on it had he known about it. <laughs> um yeah, so uh the group was started by a student named James Harvey. And he gathered a group of computer science and engineering majors from his dorm, Random Hall, and formed Random Strategies LLC, which is a great name for a betting company. I like that. Yeah. Random Strategies. And again, Um, very unassuming. Yes. Yes. True. Uh, They quickly started exploiting the same loophole loophole in the windfall game and were soon buying $600,000 of tickets each roll-down week. Uh, Now, the Selbys would always let the computers pick their numbers, but the MIT students liked to choose their own because it reduced uh, duplicates. So... This required them to fill out hundreds of thousands of ovals on paper betting slips for weeks prior to the drawing by hand before going to buy their tickets. Oh my god, I would not do that. No. (laughs) I don't even have... You know some people put the exact same numbers on week after week? Yeah. On the lottery, like... I do not, I would not even know what numbers to choose. That's, I've never, ever picked my own numbers. I've always just had the computer do it because it's like, yeah. what the fuck am I going to know? It's random. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Like thousand. Oh no. I just, like think about taking the SATs like 2000 times. That's how fucking <laughs> like I, and they did that like every six weeks or something. No. I know they're like obviously like mega geniuses because they were at MIT, so they're super smart. But are they? <laughs> but you're all like, really? Yeah. And so while 
the MIT groups were betting, group was betting, and the Selbys were betting, there was actually yet another group playing the game. A biomedical researcher at Boston University, Ying Zhang, had found the flaw in the game as well. He was initially against the idea of lotteries, but once he realized he could make tons of money playing, he was all in. So he formed a group called Dr. Zhang Lottery Club Limited Partnership. His company name, little more suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that's just now. Yeah. Yeah, so his group began betting 300 to 500,000 on each roll down drawing. And he eventually quit his job and began playing the lottery full time. And much like the Selbys, he kept all his losing tickets in his attic. That is, until their weight caused his ceiling to crack. He should have built a barn. I, right? He needed a fucking barn. Um, and the Mass State lottery officials were well aware of all of these other groups as well. Uh, Random Strategies and uh, Zhang's group were all checked on during the betting process and all found to be above board. And Jerry was actually pleased to hear one day through the grapevine that the lottery knew about other betting groups because it made what he was doing feel even more legitimate. I mean, when you think about it, it's no different to spending days on end in a casino in Vegas. It's true. Yeah. It's just a different type of gambling. Yeah. You're just gambling from dawn till dusk. Yeah. Slightly better odds by the sounds of it. Yes. Yeah. But the MIT group wasn't willing to just let things play out as they had been. They realised that the competition from the other betting groups was decreasing their profits, so they wanted to find a way to keep the other groups away from the game. So they realised they could potentially force a roll-down to happen instead of waiting for one, and possibly force it to happen before the state had chance to announce it and tip off the other groups. And in August 2010, that's exactly what they did. The jackpot the week of August 16th was 1.6 million, and it didn't look like it would roll down. Over four days, Random Strategies bought 700,000 lottery tickets worth 1.4 million. This was more than enough to trigger a roll down, and the lottery didn't announce it, and the MIT group went home with $700,000 profit while the other groups hadn't even played. No. This this is where it gets a bit dodgy. Yeah. That, that's just rude. This this it's is just bad lottery etiquette. Yes, exactly. This is like manipulation. The massive bump in the jackpot surprised the lottery officials and they looked into it, but they got it a bit wrong. They realized that one of the big groups had caused the roll down, but assumed it was Jerry and Marge. Even so, Nobody got in trouble and the game kept going. As a safeguard, the lottery installed some software that would notify them of any future high sales so they could announce a roll down if it came on very suddenly. I just love that. They just are like, yeah, fine. Let's keep it going. Mm. Uh, Now, Jerry, for his part, was pissed at the MIT group. He found that their tactics were unfair and were not in 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 the gambling spirit, if you will. Uh, mm. And he decided that the next time the MIT kids tried to trigger a roll down, he would be ready. So he learned from uh, Martis that right around Christmas, there had been a spike 
in sales uh, at five stores leading up to the December 27th drawing in 2010. So he got in his car alone and drove to Jerry's place on Christmas Day. Wow. Yeah. He printed 45,000 tickets. And between his and the MIT group's bets, another roll down happened, and Jerry's group walked away with $200,000 in profit. That's not bad, really. No. Pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. uh, but everything comes to an end eventually. And for Jerry and Marge, the beginning of the end came in the form of Boston Globe spotlight reporter Andrea Estes. Estes got a tip from a state employee in June 2011 about players who had won the lottery at least 20 times, making over $20,000 in the previous year. The tipster had noticed that on this list was a company from Michigan buying massive amounts of tickets in Sunderland, which is not a big place. They have a population of like 3,000. So it was weird. <laughs> and so Estes began to investigate. She showed up at Billy's Beverages on July 12th, 2010, right before the next planned roll down. There she found Paul Martis and Marge printing tickets. She tried to ask questions, but Marge refused to answer. So she then drove to Jerry's place, found Jerry there, and tried to question him too. And he refused. So now she really knew that something was up. Estes got public records that showed that the other betting groups playing the cash windfall game and then reached out to lottery officials for comment. The Massachusetts State Lottery denied knowing anything about it, despite the fact that they clearly knew what was going on, yeah. having investigated all three groups. Yeah. Eventually, her investigation led to the new state treasurer, Stephen Grossman, who told the lottery's executive director to do everything by the book. And just like that, the lottery started cracking down on stores who were breaking the rules. They suspended the licenses of seven convenience stores frequented by the groups, including Billy's Beverages and Jerry's Place. They finally admitted to Estes that those stores had broken the rules. What rules had they actually broken? So, letting customers operate the machines and uh, printing tickets after store hours. Yeah. Oh. That okay, rules is rules. Yes. Fine. They're very minor. That's the thing. Yeah, it's not in in the grand scheme of like um crime. Yeah, or like indiscretions. They're very small. Yeah. And then Estes broke her story. On July thirty first, twenty eleven story named Jerry and Madge as well as the MIT game MIT Kids and it exposed that for everyone who could spend at least $100,000 in tickets during a roll down week, cash windfall guaranteed a profit. Which of course meant that ordinary players buying small amounts or even single tickets were unwittingly funding the massive jackpots that the groups were winning. The story caused a sensation and Massachusetts state politicians attacked the lottery for their handling of the situation. Within a couple of days, Steve Grossman announced that the state would phase out the cash windfall game within a year, and that in the meantime, ticket sales would be limited to $5,000 per store per day. Which is a lot less. 
Yeah. Uh, Jerry was shocked when the story broke. He was stunned that he had been painted as a cheater when all he had done was take advantage of a feature of the lottery game. After all, wasn't the money he spent on tickets going towards the state and town budgets in Massachusetts? And he doesn't even live there. He doesn't even fucking live there, exactly. Apart from the 10 days he spends at the the Red Reef. Yeah, yeah, and and indeed, the lottery took a 40% cut of every ticket that was sold. So he decided that if this whole thing was going to be a scandal, people should at least know about the actually truly scandalous parts. So he decided to call up Estes and give his side of the story. Most importantly, he told her about the two roll-downs that the MIT group had forced in 2010. And this led to two more Boston Globe stories and even more public outrage. As a result, the state inspector conducted an investigation of lottery procedures to determine if there had been any corruption, which I will say, in Massachusetts and in Massachusetts state governments, there's almost always corruption. (laughs) So they weren't... (laughs) unfamiliar with this concept there i'm sure well i mean as we just said boston globe uh the spotlight investigation into the catholic church and that went all the way to the top exactly every government is corrupt if you look at it yes some you don't even some you can have a pair of very thick sunglasses on and still find the corruption it's right there exactly some you gotta you need the magnifying glass, but it's all there. Yeah, exactly. Boston, you kind of, you walk in to the city limits and corruption gives you a nice smack in the face. It's like Sin City of the Northeast. Yeah. In July 2012, the Inspector General released a report that stated, yes, the Selby's and other betting groups had broken the rules by operating machines themselves and after hours. And yes, these groups had been taking advantage of the roll-down feature of cash windfall for years while the lottery officials looked the other way. But the report also found that the game hadn't actually harmed anyone, including small-time players. Over seven and a half years, the game had added $120 million into state budgets. The betting groups had purchased around $40 million in tickets, which was... 16 million in revenue for Massachusetts. And for every drawing where there hadn't been a forced roll down, small players had just as good a chance of winning as the big groups. The report said when the jackpot hit the roll down threshold, cash windfall became a good bet for everyone, not just the high volume bettors. And some commentators, including a financial reporter for Reuters, argued that perhaps Cash Windfall was a more fair lottery game than most because it attracted poor and rich players. The last time Jerry and Marge played the lottery in Massachusetts was in January 2012. In all, they had won over $26 million in both Massachusetts and Michigan. Their total net profits were $7.75 million distributed among the GS Investment Strategies Group. Uh, in 2018, when speaking to Jason Fagoni, Jerry, who was 79 at the time, was still playing the lottery occasionally. Uh, he was trying to find a way to pick good numbers for the Powerball, though uh, he said he hadn't figured it out yet. And Marge, who had just turned 80, 
said she missed the lottery because she was, quote, too young to quit working. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> to be that motivated to, to do stuff at 80, I think is great. It's amazing. Um, now, since that article was published, Jerry and Marge's story has been picked up by a few other outlets, uh, probably most notably for a segment on CBS's 60 Minutes. And uh, they also sold the rights to their story to uh, Levantine Films, and uh, that their story is in development to become a movie called, of course, Jerry and Marge Go Large. Um, yeah, so uh, that's like still in development. It has been for a few years. Um, not sure what the movement on that is, but if it ever comes out, you better believe that I'm going to watch that first thing. Yes. Um, yeah, so that is the story of Jerry and Marge Selby, the two retirees who cracked and hacked the lottery. <sighs> Yeah. What do you say about that? Once again, whoopsies, not actually a crime, but. See, and I said this to you before I started recording. I, it, it kind of amused me because when you first mentioned this case, like way back when, was also the time you mentioned Macmillions. Yes. Um, and obviously you've written the scripts for both. I haven't done any research into either. And I mean, Macmillions... Church of the Fluffy Bunnies. Yes. Was was incredible. <laughs> um so I assumed that the lottery hackers was something more criminal and more to do with kind of in the same vein as McMillions. Uh, yes, yeah. I didn't realise that it's it's not like you say it's not a crime, but it, it feels like it should be. It's it's like it's one of those things it, it's it's like overtaking a police car. It's not illegal. <laughs> But it feels it weird feels like you, you shouldn't it. do it. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, that's the thing. So I read both of those long form articles probably around the same time. I think it was the summer that I was living in Vermont. Um, this was like 2018, and so for some reason they also got like twisted up in my mind, and like I knew that the lottery hackers were you know, these two retirees and, and obviously a very different group of people than <laughs> McMillions who... No no church of Fluffy No bunnies. church of Fluffy Bunnies, no mob connections. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I think I had remembered it as like they had actually served some time or been fined by the government or something and now they were out and telling their story. But no... They didn't do anything wrong. And I think, but that is the thing. There are certain things in our society where, like, things that potentially provoke outrage or consternation that aren't illegal, that aren't technically wrong, but people see them differently. They see them as ethically wrong, they see them as morally corrupt. We sort of mentioned that when we did um, The Canoe Man yeah. last year because their prison sentences were only like five or six years and everyone was so outraged and it's like, it's fraud. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Especially like now post-recession, <laughs> yeah. we're like, how dare you fuck with other people's money? But back then, all they were doing was scamming 
They were scamming the mortgage companies and they were scamming the insurance companies. It's the same as any other kind of fraud. It was just people got so mad about it because of just the the emotional distress Mm -hmm. that that caused as opposed to the actual crime. In this scenario, if anyone should have faced some sort of like monetary or legal consequences, it would have been the MIT group by like actually manipulating the game. But again, they manipulated it by playing by the rules, technically. So, yeah. And and that's the thing, because this, you know, state lotteries are being used to fund, essentially, they're being used to, to fund public infrastructure. Yeah. But, you know, the the fact that they're traveling from Michigan to Massachusetts and putting literally millions of, pounds, millions. millions of dollars into a different state's yeah. public funds. And also, they were, they were checked upon. Yeah. By knew the lottery them. group. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like a big secret. That's the thing. Like, so, like you say, the, the MIT group, okay, you could bring some kind of financial penalty or sanctions or something against them. Yeah. But what about the officials who just let them do what they wanted? Well, exactly. That too. Like, and I mean, I think ultimately what you boil down to here is do you want the lottery to be a game that's winnable for people smart enough and with the, you know, free time and gumption enough to sit there and buy all the tickets and count all the tickets and print all the tickets or do you want it to be a thing that exists as a pipe dream and isn't actually attainable like because like I feel like that's what we get to here yeah I think you've hit the nail on the head right completely there because it's like the lottery is derided as has this history of being derided as people like you say all the psychology suggests that people are too stupid to understand that they're not going to win yeah. we all know we're not going to win we just like it and it's a dollar or it's a, co- a pound yeah, or two or fun. whatever if you want to sit there all day buying lottery tickets why the hell shouldn't you win if yeah, you want to exactly like if you've figured out that that's the way to do it especially like you're doing everything by the book except for like you're buying tickets at 5 30 a.m before the store opens basically Mm. and like you're you're not using some you know advanced algorithm to pick the right numbers for you it's literally just sweat equity yeah and it's it's chance it's all lucky dips you're not yeah you're not even picking your own numbers and even if you're picking your own numbers like the mit kids you're doing it by fucking hand for weeks ahead of the time. Like, I would not have the the patience to start with to sit for days on end printing lottery tickets. Mm-hmm. But if someone wants to do that and put the money in, the shop owners, they make money off mm-hmm. it. There then, you know. Um what was his name? Uh Paul Ma- Mardis. Paul Mardis. Yeah. Yeah. He paid his wife got money out of it because he got divorced. Yeah, yeah. 
his his new wife. He's got three stepkids. They've all presumably got money. Well, yeah, there's a great line in the um 2018 article, and it's like, Jerry and Marge put away money for their kids, their grandkids, and their great-grandkids that they didn't even have yet. It's mm-hmm. like to to be able to build that kind of generational wealth is so huge. And like yeah. and they did that all after they retired. Like yeah. But and again it's what old money has been doing for centuries. Exactly. It's just a totally different way of doing it. But yeah, I, yeah, that's the thing. I feel like if you're willing to sit there and do it and put in the time and count all the tickets and put them in your barn or have your ceiling crack from the weight of the losing tickets like more power to you like i really hope irs had to go through all this <laughs> you know right <laughs> like it's just i i love these kinds of stories because it's like it showcases I, this sounds so corny but like the human spirit or like ingenuity (laughs) but like it's also just so fucking cool yeah and also it's like rage against the machine type of thing isn't it it's little people winning it's it's very robin hood yes yeah absolutely oh so so there you go there you go not technically a crime what you know Actually, you should all tell us what isn't a crime but feels like it should be because yeah. all I can think of is like overtaking a police car when they're driving like dicks at 20, you know, 20 <laughs> mile an hour in a 60 zone. Uh god, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, tell us tell us what your examples of of that that kind of thing is. Um yeah. So, uh if you like the show, As always, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, we have a selection of really cool products with awesome designs, and you can find those at the link in our show notes or on our website. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page tiers start at just one pound per month every patron gets regular episodes a day early a shout out on the show priority case requests and a lifetime discount on merch and that's just for one pound a month as tiers go up you get even more including bonus episodes and exclusive merch that you can't buy anywhere check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder links are in all the usual places and uh, we'll see you well, we'll see our patrons in a few days because we have had serious technical problems this month. That means all our patron, all our Patreon content is going out in like two days. Yeah, instead of over three weeks. You're you're getting a, a Patreon week extravaganza because clear your weekend schedule. Yeah, because computers hated us this month. So um, <laughs> be on the lookout for that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for everyone else, we will see you next week. Yeah. Uh, ooh, next May, we have a new theme month coming up as well. We so do. be sure to check that out next week. Yeah. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.